Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we are heading. And yes, it's often violent and generally quite bloody. And on a further note, Jamie recorded this just before Putin decided to invade Ukraine, and so we've made a few changes to the end of this episode. Hello, it's Jamie here, and welcome back to Bloody Bites. It's where I get locked in a darkened room until I've come up with something interesting to say. Not unlike your average dinner party, really. Today's subject is Top Trumps, Minds Bigger Than Yours. I was in the back of a London cab the other day and the old fellow driving was telling me that he was one of the last people ever to sleep in a hammock in the Royal Navy. And I said, what was your ship? And he replied, you'll never have heard of her. Uh, She was called Blake. And I said, oh, HMS Blake, sister ships, Tiger and Lion, a Tiger-class cruiser, 555 feet long, about 12,000 tonnes, Uh, two six-inch guns, two three-inch guns, and four Wessex helicopters. And he said, how the hell did you know that? But obviously with more expletives. And I said, it's simple, top trumps. And that's the card game in which you have different specifications of military equipment or ships or whatever, and you simply compare the data. And if your data is better, the specs are higher than your opponents, you take their card. It's simple. And it's a great way of learning different characteristics, different specifications of different weapon systems. So that's the game I'm going to play today. And it's a fascinating way of looking at things, you know, to see what came along in the past and what's going to come out of the laboratories of the future, what's going to come out of Boeing's Phantom Works, Lockheed Martin's Skunk Works, or BAE Systems, Fast Labs, all the places where these sort of systems are being developed and created, where these concepts uh, are being worked on. I mean, why not have a top trumps on great tables of despots? We've already done the desks of despots in our tyrants and their lack of taste podcast. So why not long tables? After all, Putin sits at one. And to see Putin and Macron at either end of the table, they looked like extras, uh, sleazy and Frenchy from Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. But back to military systems, defense systems. The one thing the card game doesn't capture necessarily is what's below the surface, what makes those defense systems work, what makes them superior. For example, there's the aspect of reliability. How do you make a system reliable? What makes it unreliable? If you look at modern weapon systems, so often it's the rice bowl effect that these systems have come into being through politics, through uh, jockeying for position by different political groups, different interest groups. And what you come up with is a system that simply doesn't work. You take something like the PAH-2 Tiger, the European Airbus helicopter's Uh, attack helicopter, the equivalent of the Apache, it has a terrible reliability record. Uh, With the Germans, for example, it only has 11% reliability. The Australians have just dropped it in favour of the Apache. They bought a whole load and now they're getting rid of them. 
because they simply can't get them to work. So you see this all the way through. Uh, then you get armored vehicles, for example. In 2011, uh, the US Marine Corps dropped its amphibious expeditionary fighting vehicle, the, this vehicle that was going to transform their ability to land and take beachheads and move inland. So they dropped that because it was becoming too unreliable, too over spec'd, if you like, and it just didn't work decently. So they dropped that and in 2011 and went for the amphibious combat vehicle from another contractor. So all the way through, this tends to happen. You look at the British Army and its Ajax tank. They've had terrible problems with noise and vibration. This was pointed out in 2018, but guess what? The project still rolls ahead in spite of all those problems. On a bigger scale, you get the US Navy's literal combat ship, known as the little crappy ship in so many circles. And there were two classes in the literal combat ship category, the idea of producing a warship that could fight in literal areas. And again, it was too unreliable, underarmed, under-equipped, couldn't be modernized effectively. And so both the USS Independence and the USS Freedom, the, the lead ships of those classes, have been shelved and decommissioned uh, under halfway through their service lives. So this tends to happen, and reliability is an issue that isn't picked up in the top trumps game. Then there's expense, because cost is a massive part, obviously, of defence spending, but also of effectiveness. If you have systems that are too expensive, they're either not going to be bought, or the numbers that are bought are so small, they're not going to make an impact. Uh, you could start, for example, with that fantastic helicopter, the RAH-66, the Comanche, and that was cancelled in 2004. $7 billion had been spent on the development there, and it was supposed to complement and supplement the Apache helicopter. It had stealth characteristics, but it was so expensive, and they couldn't really think of a role for it. It came out of the sort of bow wave effect of all these spending programs from the Cold War, and eventually it was just cancelled. But Many of those stealth characteristics have fed into other programs. Uh, the Black Hawk, for example, that went into uh, attack Osama bin Laden in 2011, uh, they had stealth characteristics, and many of those would have been developed for the Comanche. But that's a program that died a death. Then you take uh, air programs such as the B-2 Spirit Bomber. Again, so expensive, only 20 were ever built. Only 20 are in service. So that was from a program that was supposed to have over 100 bombers. It never fulfilled its role as the mainstay of the US strategic bombing force. And what can you do with a, an aircraft at $2 billion uh, a unit with, with all the costs thrown in? You, you take a, another system, the F-22 Raptor, the, this great air supremacy fighter that was supposed to dominate the skies after the millennium. And only about 80 or 90 are in service from 182 that were ordered, a, a tiny amount. And again, reliability and cost uh, have been an issue. So all the way through, you get these problems. You get you know, reliability and cost uh, undermining so many of these programs and that, that would not 
be shown on in a if you shuffle the pack of uh, top trump's game the other area really to look at is obsolescence because so many of these systems that look so good on papers look so good on a card uh, don't work out in practice or events overtake them you take something like the british challenger 2 tank with its rifle gun pretty good in its day but it rapidly became obsolescent you know come the millennium it th there were too many tanks out there who could outfight it outgun it outpace it but it's going to be turned into uh, the challenger 3 and lo and behold, with a 120-millimeter smoothbore Rheinmetall gun with a power pack that's going to be able to give it a speed of 60 miles an hour, it, it will, again, take charge of the battlefield and will be an extremely good uh, weapon. So, you know, these are the sorts of things that can happen. Um, then, of course, you get countermeasures. And this is a key thing that doesn't come up in your top trumps pack. You know, if you look at what happened to the days of the cavalry, you know, to counter it, stakes in the ground, the, the birth of the longbow. The longbow dominated uh, the battlefield uh, at Crecy, Poitiers and Agincourt. We, I talked about that in the podcast, The Bloody Bite, on the longbow. So you got that against the cavalry. Against infantry, you ended up with the development of the musket um, and with cannon and with artillery. Come the 20th century, you got the machine gun. But those countermeasures breed counter-countermeasures because then you get the invention of the tank. And again, that fosters another arms race, if you like, because to counter the tank, you got anti-tank weapons and then anti-tank missiles. And so the tank developed reactive armor to defeat those shaped warheads on the anti-tank missiles. So the anti-tank missiles get tandem warheads and become top attack weapons. They go through the thinner part of the tank on the, on the top, on the top of the turret. So th these sorts of developments, these sort of countermeasures and measures happen all the time. It happens on the ground, it happens in the air with air-to-air -air missiles, which are infrared guided at short range. You start getting aircraft deploying flares and decoys, and you get the birth of electronic countermeasures, obviously to defeat radar systems and other air-to-air -air missiles, longer-range air-to-air missiles. So everywhere you go, you get this constant battle. You get it, too, on a strategic level. You get it between states, this idea of a push by one state and a pushback by the other. And a country that doesn't have the military might to defeat the enemy in one area might go for an asymmetric approach. And you can see that from the Soviet Union and now Russia. The Soviets, for example, could not compete militarily with the West, so they started backing terrorist organizations. And the Russians carried that forward with promoting and backing extremist groups in the West by going for cyber attacks, ransomware, malware, by manipulating oil gas prices, you know, destabilizing your neighbor is the oldest trick in the book. Creating problems is one way of keeping the other side off balance. And that is what the Russians do. 
I mean, during the 1970s, for example, uh, you know, President Nixon in the United States uh, unilaterally banned the use of biological weapons development in the United States. And this was followed up with an international treaty, arms control treaty, banning the development and deployment of biological weapons, of germ warfare and toxins. Um, the Soviet Union signed it, but guess what? They didn't abide by it. They thought the Americans were cheats, so they decided to cheat. And the Russians are born cheats. So they went ahead and tried to weaponize huge amounts of anthrax, plague, smallpox, and other diseases. And you can see what happened with the 1979 anthrax breakout in Sverdlovsk, for example, when people were dying from inhaling anthrax spores when it broke out of the military development labs. So these are the sorts of things that happen on a strategic level. You get that same battle, that same development of weapons and the countermeasures, the pushback, the asymmetric warfare. And that goes on in environment and, and such things as cyber warfare have created new opportunities. And that is going to develop even more in the future. So that's countermeasures. So we've had uh, reliability issues, cost issues. Uh, we've also had obsolescence issues. We've had countermeasures. And there's also the matter of longevity, which, again, top trumps doesn't always capture. It is extraordinary when you look at some weapon systems how long they stay in service, that they have a capacity to be upgraded, to be redeployed. If you take two of my favorite aircraft from the Second World War, the P-51 Mustang and the Spitfire, God bless them both. It's extraordinary how they evolved, that the Mustang, once it got a Merlin engine and drop tanks, it could escort US bombers over Germany. And they had long lives. The last deployment of the Spitfire by the RAF was in 1954, when it flew on a photo reconnaissance mission looking for communist insurgents in the jungles. And so it showed the flexibility that it had life after the Second World War. The Mustang had an even longer life because the Israelis used both the Spitfire and the Mustang in the post-war environment. And the Israelis used the Mustang for ground attack in 1956 during the Suez Crisis. And they didn't retire the Mustang until 1961. So it had an incredibly long life. But the prize for longevity has got to go to the B-52 bomber. As the name suggests, it first flew in the early 1950s and became the mainstay of the U.S. strategic bombing force. And in fact, it needed to. It's actually outlived all those other bombers, such as the B-1 and the B-2, and will have a longer life than the B-2. It's extraordinary. And even now, 76 B-52s are going to be re-engined with Rolls-Royce engines. Uh, that's well over 600 engines uh, being refitted to those B-52s, and that will keep them flying for the next 30 years, which means that they will have been in service for an entire century, for 100 years before they retire. So I think that requires a round of applause. And I remember the B-52 in a top trumps game back in the 70s when I was a schoolboy. So it's amazing that they'll still be on that deck of cards uh, in 30 years' time, if I'm still around. So quite amazing. 
those are the pitfalls, the ups and downs that don't always get reflected in the deck of cards and the pack of top trump cards. But it's worth looking at the air, sea and land areas in a bit more detail. And air is probably the most fascinating because this is where technology changes, where it's really the white heat of technology and what is happening there. And you know, in the 70s, it was the third generation fighters that dominated, really, fighters such as the F-16, F-15, F-18. And they were great and they became multi-role and later on swing-role. They... they went, they evolved from being very specialist back in the 60s and 70s, you know, from combat air support, interdictor strike and air supremacy. You know, these were very individual roles. And then they, they morphed, they merged into each other. And you got aircraft being able to fulfill all these missions. And you look at the fourth generation fighters, the JAS-39 Gripen, the Dasso Rafale, the Eurofighter Typhoon, and they've all moved in to taking those roles that were formerly taken care of, performed by other aircraft. So this is the change. You can get a single aircraft, a single pilot, doing so much more with the equipment at their disposal. And, of course, you're now getting the next generation coming in. Of course, there are reliability issues, as the F-22 Raptor showed. I mean, people have talked about the F-35, the new uh, fighter from Lockheed Martin. Uh, two and a half thousand of those going to be bought by the US military alone. But some people have called it the $1.5 trillion disaster. But actually, it can't be a disaster because it's amazing how many countries around the world, from Australia to Finland to Switzerland, are buying the type. And, and that's just the start. You know, this is going to be the aircraft to beat. This is going to be the aircraft to dominate the, the skies for the next 20 or 30 years. And you, know, you can see what the Chinese and the Russians are coming up with to try and meet it in the air. You get the Sukhoi Su-57, you get the Chinese J-20, but very few of those have come into service yet. I mean, there are well over 600 uh, F-35s currently in service around the world. The Israelis have used it in combat, for example. But you know, the Russians and the Chinese, I suspect, will have huge reliability issues with their versions. But the next generation is already uh, being designed, already being developed. I mean, you know, this sort of technology tends to trickle down to other countries. You look at Turkey, India, Japan, they're all developing fighters. Uh, the Japanese, like the UK, are developing a sixth generation fighter, they call it the FX, that's going to come into service in the mid-2030s. Uh, in the UK, you have the future combat air system being developed, the equivalent being done by France, Germany and Spain combined. Uh, in uh, the US, you've got the next generation air dominance fighter being looked at. And the sort of technology that is going to feed in includes deep artificial intelligence, variable cycle engines that allow uh, fighters to travel in the subsonic, transonic and supersonic realm very efficiently and save a lot of fuel. 
uh, you're going to get directed energy weapons. So all this technology is feeding in. Uh, those countries that are d sort of trying to catch up and develop sort of fourth or fifth generation fighters are probably not going to make that leap because the expense is so huge. I mean, the UK is investing £2 billion in its sixth generation fighter program. So it'll be fascinating to see what the deck of top trumps looks like in 20, 30 years' time. There'll be some very strange shapes flying, that's for sure. Anyway, on the naval side, you'll probably get a few changes in platform shapes, but that shape, that type of warship, you sort of know what is going to come down the line. The lead times are so much longer, and you can see from the frigates, really, that are the workhorse of navies around the world, what is going to come along. You know, you look at the Royal Navy's type 26 and Type 31 frigates. The Type 26 is being adopted by countries such as Canada and Australia. So you know the shape of, of, of warships for the next 30 years. They are essentially platforms that carry uh, new weapon systems. So it'll be interesting to see the weapon systems developments rather than the warship developments per se. And you can see that Sea Scepter missile, for example, which is the new generation of surface-to-air missile that has taken on, taken over from the short-range missiles like the Sea Cat of the 60s and 70s and the Sea Wolf that came in in the sort of 80s, that the growth of vertical launch systems, for example, that makes it so much more efficient to, to fire and equip ships. Um, you know, that is going to be the future. You're not going to get these sort of rather uh, complicated reloading systems that ships had in the past. You know, their weapons, what you see is what you get. The weapons are going to be carried outside in vertical launch canisters. So that's really the change. But the sensor systems, you know, and the weapon system, that's where to look. Um, the Radar systems are extraordinary. Their ability to attract thousands of targets and fire independent fire and forget missiles to take them down. You know, all these sorts of things are changing and anti-ship missile technology is changing and the growth of hypersonic weapons is changing. And it's the one thing actually where the Russians do compete. They have extremely good missile technology and always have. Never forget that back in the 1980s, they developed their perimeter system, their pyramid system, that allowed for a ballistic missile to be fired that carried a communications warhead that would communicate to all the other ballistic missiles and get them to fire simultaneously. You know, the, the Russians have always put a lot of effort into their missiles. Then you get uh, ground forces. And again, a bit like the... Uh, aerial systems, one of the things that is really developing apace is autonomy. The fact that you're getting uncrewed vehicles. And so the sixth generation of fighters, that might be crewed, might be uncrewed. The same is true of armoured vehicles. So you get things like the optionally manned fighting vehicle. Uh, that is the next generation infantry fighting vehicle in the United States. And it just shows that the, the fact they put optionally manned into uh, the title of the armoured programme shows that this is the way things are heading, that you, having a crew is probably going to be incidental in the future. You're going to 
get so much done by simulation, by remotely operated or autonomously operated vehicles. That is going to be the way things are. And that really takes me on once again to the strategic end of the spectrum. We talked about in terms of countermeasures and asymmetric warfare, you know, the fact that there were IEDs and that was the way that guerrilla organizations or the Taliban fought Western armies with, with a response to which we weren't necessarily um, the best equipped to deal with at the time. And so it goes with strategic level politics as well it's interesting to see who will win if you do a top trumps you know who is equally matched who will overcome the other side whether it's taiwan versus china or ukraine versus russia well when it comes to taiwan versus china my bets are on taiwan succeeding because you know you have to have a lot of experience to mount an amphibious operation the allies in world war 2 had to land in north africa and italy and train extremely hard in order to land successfully on the Normandy beaches. China does not have that experience. And if you look at the weapon systems with which Taiwan is equipped, whether it's Skybow, air defense systems, antelope missile systems, their anti-ship missile systems, they've got a strong air force. You know, I think that the Chinese would find it very, very difficult to mount an amphibious landing on Taiwan and hold the ground. When it comes to Ukraine versus Russia, then it's pretty clear to me that Russia has already failed because you cannot kill an idea. You cannot kill a people's wish for sovereignty, self-determination and independence. And one thing the Russians haven't learned are the lessons from Stalingrad, that with whatever weapons you have, with tanks, you're going to end up in choke points and killing zones and you're not going to find it easy to push through urban areas that you have rubbleized yourself. So whatever the weapons the Russians throw at them, the Ukrainians are going to fight back with whatever means they have at their disposal. And they have weapons that are very well suited to urban warfare. They have light anti-tank weapons, they have javelin anti-tank missiles, they have stinger missiles that are shoulder-launched surface-to-air. And that's why the Russians have been suffering uh, helicopter and aircraft casualties as well as armoured vehicles and tanks. So that is going to be extremely bloody, extremely close quarters. And the Russians, by standing back and bombarding cities, are still going to find it very hard to take them. What they're going to inherit is scorched earth. They might want to send Ukraine back into the Dark Ages, but they themselves will be sent back into the Dark Ages by economic sanctions, which is another weapon that doesn't really appear on the top Trump's card pack. So when it comes to the future, what I've said is that you cannot essentially keep down a people. You know, what, what they're doing with the future is essentially funding the creation of a future Ukraine because they've lit the spark of independence. Back in November 1999, I launched a thriller called Colcut about a KGB chief who takes over the 
presidency of Russia and tries to return Russia uh, to its Stalinist past. And he didn't have a happy end. And that is the same with Putin. He is essentially lost because he's lost the moral argument. And what it comes down to as well in the future is for the West a reinvigorated NATO that seemed really to have lost ground over the last couple of decades, that it has grown again, that its relevance has been noticed, it will have to stand its ground. And we in the West will have to actually fight for our values in the same way that Ukrainians are fighting for theirs. These things are not always reflected in a card game, but the card game that Putin has played is one in which he will lose his hand and then eventually his head. So that is my prediction. And all I can say is that we said at the beginning of the Bloody Violent History podcasts that history has a timpani beat. It has a resonance and a rhythm that tends to repeat. And 80 years ago, last month, Bomber Harris, Sir Arthur Harris, Tom's grandfather, took over RAF Bomber Command and the strategic bombing of Germany increased in tempo and importance. And this year, the United States Air Force is rolling out its new heavy strategic bomber, the B-21 Raider. And it shows that the American defense community are rising to the occasion. They're producing systems that are now going to step up. You know, they're going to be 145 upwards of these B-21 bombers compared, contrasting to the 20 uh, B-2 spirit bombers. So, you know, we have to invest in defense. We have to believe in defense and we have to understand that we have to stand shoulder to shoulder against future threats. And that's what it's really all about. And meanwhile, Russia, isolated, economically starved, will slip back into the dark ages and containment and deterrence will once again become critical. So God bless Ukraine. Long live Ukraine. And I raise a glass to the defenders who are fighting for their cities, for their lives, and for their country. Anyway, that's Top Trumps. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it, and it's a game worth playing. Goodbye. So it goes. His name is James Jackson. My name is Tom Ashton. Our next episode is on mercenaries in a fortnight's time. And yes, the Russians do make an appearance. Thank you and good luck. <laughs>